the good, the bad, and the Boucherian. The good, the bad, and the Boucherian. And folks, you're listening to the good, the bad, and the Boucherian. Um, honestly, I don't think I have. And I think it's one of those things that continuously impact how you think about yourself and how you think about life. Because as you said, if from a young age, like class one, everyone is like, you are number one, you're so smart. You feel like that's the only thing that you can, like that will make people appreciate you. And so like, yeah. it becomes something in your subconscious mind that like, as long as I'm doing well in my academics, then I'm doing great. And it kind of makes you base your worth on that, which is, I think I'm still battling with that. Mm-hmm. But then just when I was comfortable with that and like, I was happy I did well in KCC, I found myself at Stanford. Mm-hmm. And that was like a whole other, a whole other level of imposter syndrome. Because uh-huh. at Stanford, it's not just who's top in class. At Stanford, it's who's, who created an app when they were 12, who's in the Olympics. Like, it's so crazy. You feel like you've done nothing your whole life. And in your mind, you know, like, personally, I like to believe I did the best with what I had to, like, get to Stanford, considering, like, yeah, just what I was given. But you also, like, compare yourself to your peers. And you're like, how come they could do this at 12? And it's like, I know I didn't have a computer at 12, but still when my first issue was how much American kids can express themselves genuinely like I don't think I was taught to express myself yeah and this is like even to my not to my peers but like yeah even to my peers these things I couldn't express but American kids even though they talk to the professors I was in shock like I was in shock because you know in Kenya we have this like power dynamic thing where it's like respect your teachers you can't talk like this you can't do this but they're very I don't know and I had to learn that I had to learn that to like survive in class and like it's your boy Billy and we're back at it with another episode hope you guys are keeping well keeping safe and things are going well on your side as they are on mine. And today in studio, my guest is Alison Ketani, a junior at Stanford and a computer science major. And today we'll be talking about a lot of things, including her transition into the United States, just learning more about herself, discovering herself, and how adulthood has been for her. And so, Alison. Yes. <laughs> And now that you've said, like, in class, things are always, like, for you, classwork is never that hard. Have you learned? I didn't didn't exactly say that. What did you exactly say? (laughs) I said said it's easier to talk about things that you've read in books and have been taught than to, like, voice your opinions. Isn't that one? Okay. So it's not one of the same thing. Mm. But... For you, obviously, obviously being in Stanford and going this far means that uh, all your life, probably academics haven't been the hardest thing for you, like it would be for the ordinary person, right? 
Yes, I want to agree. Yeah. <laughs> At least I don't you know disputed. So for you how growing <laughs> up, I know uh-huh. in the last episode when I was talking to Jeff we were just talking about how sometimes you know obviously being that academic gifted child you always receive validation for that from your mm-hmm. peers, from your teachers, from your parents because especially growing up in an 844 system that's what they appreciate, that's what they see. They don't see you beyond you beyond that they don't see your talents your talents can come fine but let the grade come first then probably let's discuss talents after so for you um how have you learned to probably dissociate yourself from this academic validation that's if you have and Mm -hmm. was it an easy journey um honestly i don't think i have and i think it's one of those things that continuously impact how you think about yourself and how you think about life because as you said if from a young age like class one everyone is like you were number one you're so smart you feel like that's the only thing that you can like that will make people appreciate you and so like Mm -hmm. it becomes something in your subconscious mind that like as long as I'm doing well in my academics then I'm doing great and it kind of makes you base your worth on that, which is, I think I'm still battling with that. Like I'm trying to, I'm trying to tell myself there's more to me than just my grades, but like the fact that it's all I've known growing up just makes it really hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I knew that. Uh-huh. Oh, so I wouldn't say that I have like, gotten over it or I found a way to go around it because it's just in it's in my subconscious so what's the way to go around it and even that I like I completely agree with you because I've talked to some mm-hmm. people and for them they've said they've dissociated from me and I'm like it's so nice to be you because how do you dissociate from something you've known because you and me have, have struggled with that a lot where mm-hmm. obviously you, you you've gone to all these good schools and so even perceived you in a certain way and so for mm-hmm. me I go to uni and I told myself at least in uni, I won't, I won't base my validation of academics. So I'll do my best, but then mm-hmm. like if things don't go too well, I won't be too hard on myself. But even mm-hmm. though I say that with my mouth subconsciously, I still wanna get that those A's in the grades. I just wanna pass, you know. Like I mm-hmm. still don't wanna do just the bare minimum that other people would easily do. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I get it. Um. I I actually do not know like how exactly people go about it because for myself, just because I've been so focused on my academics my whole life, I actually don't think I had time to sit down and like discover who I was, even like through high school, which is where you should be discovering who you are. Um, I never got to discover what I like to do. I actually just recently learned that I, I like to write poetry, but like I just feel like I never got time to sit down and discover, like, you know how they say there's more to you? Yeah, I never yeah. got to discover what that more is. Mm-hmm. And so that's 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 very hard because I'm, like, almost 22 and I still don't know, like, when people are like, what are your hobbies? I'm like, um, I studied most of my life, so I'm not sure I have hobbies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so for you, again, with that, have you ever... When guys talk about imposter syndrome, is there any part mm-hmm. of your life you've faced this? Or is it that now that this academic thing has been very, has been, has taken a big priority in your life, that perhaps when other people are thinking of imposter syndrome over such things, for you to never been such 
a big deal, you know? No, it definitely has been a big deal. I, mm-hmm. in fact, when I went from primary, because in primary school, I think it was easier for me. Like I was always topic of my class. And then I got to Alliance and everyone was top of their class in primary school. And so I think the first exam we did, I was like, hundred and something and uh-huh. I remember calling my dad and telling my dad I want to transfer to another school <laughs> where I can be number <laughs> one and that was like the first time I was like maybe I don't belong at Alliance maybe I belong to like a different school that doesn't have people who are you know as smart not even as smart just like as determined to do well in school yeah and then I guess eventually I kind of like found my way and uh just got to accept that I wouldn't always be top mm-hmm. but then just when I was comfortable with that and like I was happy I did well in KCC I found myself at Stanford mm-hmm. and that was like a whole other a whole other level of imposter syndrome because uh. at Stanford it's not just who's top in class at Stanford it's who's who created an app when they were 12 who's in the Olympics. Like, it's so crazy. You feel like you've done nothing your whole life. And in your mind, you know, like, personally, I like to believe I did the best with what I had to, like, get to Stanford, considering, like, yeah, just what I was given. But you also, like, compare yourself to your peers. And you're like, how come they could do this at 12? And it's like, I know I didn't have a computer at 12, but still. So, yeah, Stanford, I... I I think I still do experience it. Like there's times when really? things mm-hmm. happen or like we'll be having conversations and I'll be like, bruh, how did I get here? I generally do not belong here. Mm. Yeah. So with that does definitely. it get does it get easier? Or like like you still feel the imposter syndrome, but it's not too bad, or is it just the same constant imposter syndrome? With that as well, for you, how have you learned to accept that? Truly, you weren't afforded some of these opportunities that some of these people had their entire lives. You're coming from a third world country where you're facing, your challenges that you're facing here are way different from the challenges them that are facing at 12, right? Mm-hmm. So for you, have you come to, have you, or have you come to accept and understand it? And if so, how have you, how did you learn to understand that ukweli, we're all different? Because again, I think like growing up in an 844 system, the, your drill, the indoctrination of everything that competition is so much that it's very mm. hard to dissociate from competition like you know that you can say that obviously yeah um our backgrounds are different and um mm-hmm. you know things things are different for each of us and you'd rationalize it like that with a full stop and say yeah that's fine but for some of us we'll go ahead and say but that's not an excuse mm. i should be doing better still you know so mm. for you how has that been um well i think first of all it does get easier like the imposter syndrome kind of reduces with time also because freshman year is there's all there's so much going on already like the culture shock and everything so it's very easy to feel out of place but as you eventually you just kind of find your place at stanford you find like your group of people and whatever you want to study and the good thing with stanford is in as much as everyone is super accomplished it's not very competitive it's more of like a let's work together kind of mentality and Mm, so mm -hmm. yeah like it's not very competitive people will help you out you'll help people out um i 
I don't know if I wouldn't say I got rid of I did not get rid of all the imposter syndrome, but yeah, I don't it's it, it got easier. It got easier. I also forgot the second part of your question. <laughs> <laughs> the second part of the question is accepting the differences that you guys come oh, from yeah, different. Yeah. Mm. Um I guess it's just it is what it is, you know. Cause because <laughs> mm-hmm. when you when you look at a school like Stanford, there's people from so many different, like there's people from third world countries and then there's people whose dads are billionaires. And you can't, there'll always be someone smarter than you. There'll always be someone richer than you. There'll always be someone, you know, better than you. Not better, but like, yeah, kind of better. You know what I mean? So, yeah. <laughs> so just accepting that. Once you accept that and you make peace with the fact that you and not competing with anyone you're only competing with yourself like your only goal is to do better for yourself and i think i'm doing better for myself and i think um getting to stand for that i was already challenging myself and i'm my only competition so i don't like you're not competing with anyone i think just once you understand that and you understand that you know life everyone is given different opportunities and sometimes these things we just don't control and that's not mm-hmm. yeah and now that you bring up the topic on culture shock as well please can mm-hmm. you explain to me your experience with culture shock there was it like a really steep curve or were some of the things not too bad so for you how was your experience with transitioning from kenya to stanford yeah that question has like six parts but um <laughs> culture <laughs> shock see i thought genuinely genuinely i thought i was like there can't be that much culture shock you know i've watched movies i mean it's just people like mm. in my mind i was like i'm going to be good equal ground yeah <laughs> like it's even up to the smallest thing but i think the biggest thing for me is understanding that the fact that i'm black means something because in kenya you don't really think like that right like you never At think all. maybe this is happening because mm. i'm black like it's never in your mind you don't have to consider it when you make decisions you don't have to consider it at any point but getting there and realizing even for the smallest things like even when you're ordering your coffee how they talk to you in the back of your mind you have to consider that that was crazy to me that was the first thing that threw me off and then i just mm-hmm. feel like it's a whole different culture like the way they when my first issue was how much american kids can express themselves genuinely like i don't think i was taught to express myself yeah and this is like even to my not to my peers but like yeah even to my peers these things i couldn't express but american kids even though they talk to the professors i was in shock like i was in shock cuz you know in kenya we have this like power dynamic thing where it's like respect your teachers you can't talk like this you can't do this but they're yeah. very i don't know and i had to learn that i had to learn that to like survive in class and like you know actually ask questions and stuff mm-hmm. and then there's like the normal stuff like uh i don't know food and just the way they talk it was just very little things and initially i remember thinking um like the first day i was like no nah, i'll be all right i'll be all right but by the third week i was like i and it 
I had this period like between I think my second week to like my fourth week where I was constantly because this was like um we were still online like we were at Stanford but everything was online so I was constantly on calls with my friends in Kenya like I was calling one after one after one and it got to a point Joy was like bruh you're gonna have to like put your phone down and go outside and you know figure it because it's comfortable like I was comfortable with them right and it was like a sense of comfort to talk to them Mm. and I think I was trying to avoid and like yeah just avoid having to adapt to the place but yeah, um, you are just feeling the inevitable. Mm. Exactly. Like eventually, I would have to do it. And yeah, yeah. Joy was like, "Just you can't keep calling me by the way." <laughs> I was like, <laughs> "Okay." I know I love you, but <laughs> but yeah, uh, yeah. Uh huh. And on the thing, on the thing of like community, I the good thing is. Um, so when COVID started, we couldn't have our first quarter at Stanford, so we did it at Kwetu, which was a time, <laughs> it was a time of its own. But um, the good thing is there was a lot, not a lot, like all Stanford Kenyan students were at Kwetu. Mm. So we kind of like spent about three months together. I'm going to say two, not three. And we kind of got to know each other. And so we flew together. Well, yeah, we flew together and we already knew each other. So that wasn't too hard for me, especially because some of the students were um, sophomores. I was a freshman at the time. So it was very easy to be like, how do I go about this and this and this? And that was really important because it's very easy to feel alone. Like, I remember one of the sophomores told me, you're going to cry yourself to sleep the first night. I was like, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. Uh, this is my dream. dream. I- I was uh, like, this is my dream. <laughs> what do you mean? I, uh, I, cry, I cried like a baby. <laughs> it's uh-huh. just this feeling of you. It hits you. It hits you how far away you are from home, from everyone you love, from everything you know. And it's just, yeah. But the Kenyans are very supportive. And I think the African community at Stanford is very like supportive it's like a family i think it's my family but with that you know i was talking again to someone and they're saying how sometimes Mm. you guys now as uh, probably some first generation Mm. as the few black kids it's you guys Mm. don't talk about your struggles so much because it's Mm -hmm. you don't have him like the weak person and everyone seems like they have their stuff figured out you see how some of us see on social media and we're like wow alison has her whole life figured out like it can only get better <laughs> for her, you know? And that's just yeah. like, eh, God, when? So, even the support, are you guys able to support each other with by being honest and honest about your conversations, about struggles you guys are all having? Or do we support each other, but because struggles, no one is struggling, <laughs> at least on the surface of it. That's all crowds um, to sleep, but, uh-huh. Genuinely, I... I don't think I've had an issue with that. I think all the friends that I have, especially the first generation low income or the African ones, we're very honest in terms of how hard it can be to be at Stanford um, in terms of where we are in terms of mental health and stuff like that. Uh, I do, there's like some sort of 
when, when you say you don't want to appear like the weaker person, I see that with some of the people, but that's only in like academics. Like there's people who will genuinely, like they'll die before they tell you they're struggling in a class. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's okay. We all struggle in some classes, you know. Yeah. But in terms of like support and like talking about, you know, what's going on at home, how you feel about helping people at home, how you feel about, um, I don't know, everything. I think everyone is pretty honest because it's, 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 not, it's not a secret, you know. Yeah. 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 So have you ever struggled in a class? Are you serious? <laughs> I'm actually so serious. Because all along you've been oh struggling. God. Was this the point where God told you, okay, let me show you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I can count the number of classes that I've not struggled in Lies. on one hand that on your line even you know that on your line to me because I know I'm computer not, things I am, uh-huh. I am actually not lying and that's a crazy thing because I try to tell people this I have friends who are still in med school right uh, and I'm like, bro, I'm struggling so hard. I'm probably gonna fail this exam. They're like, Kitan, you've been saying that since high school. I'm like, this is not high school, bro. <laughs> this is crazy. I'm actually struggling. Uh, <laughs> uh-huh. But yeah, I I think I mean by struggling like you have to put maximum effort to get like a passing grade. Yeah. Not even an A like genuinely you will stay up you'll do everything and you'll get like i don't know you'll get like a b and you'll be happy and then you'll be told the class averages an a minus you're like what yeah it's so crazy it's so crazy and it's you feel like you're the only one you know you're not the only one struggling but it feels like that because when the results come out it's like you think you did well and then it just i don't know the curve just goes crazy. But yeah, I struggle in a lot of my classes. But I have a lot of help and all. And I think Stanford really, in as much as Stanford does not pay much attention to like the welfare of the students and all, I think they try really hard to provide as many resources. So if you want to do well, you will. You just have to go out of your way to find all these things. Mm. Yeah. And so with that as well, Two questions mm-hmm. where how sometimes do you feel like some of us as your friends undermine like you saying that I'm struggling in this class or do you forgive us for it and just say, okay, maybe it's because I used to say this in high school and I used to pass so they don't actually think. Because for some of us, it's very hard to believe that Alison is struggling in a class. You know, like how is Alison, <laughs> how is Alison, Alison didn't attend a whole med semester but still passed and people who are attending every day <laughs> so as in how do you feel when some of us are just like I Alison Apple, you're just pushing it and you're um, actually being genuinely serious uh-huh. how do I feel it's called mind? honestly stand because this is one of those things where you have to be there to understand what's going on mm. like but that's only in class what I don't yeah. like is when people um like when I if I complain and I'm like I'm going through a tough time and people are like, Ah, well do you Kenya? 
um mm. you're at Stanford that that I don't like because it's like, I know it's true like uh, it's a privilege it's actually I'm very grateful for it but that's not really people to think that I don't have problems and I understand people, everyone has problems right and mm. from the outside I mean social media lies to everyone no one posts on social media crime well some people post crime but <laughs> it's hard <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to get the whole picture and the only information they have is social media and of course my instagram i'll post photos where, like i look happy i wouldn't post photos where i was depressed um and in their mind they're like she has this great opportunity and it's true that doesn't mean i don't have problems so i don't mind the academic one like that's okay but whenever people literally just dismiss all my everything because they're like you are stand for you should be grateful i don't like that it annoys me yeah well, i always say i always tell guys if you're drowning 1 meter someone else is drowning 2 meters at the end of the day you're drowning and i all drowning actually, yeah mm, and actually so a post by someone that i did talking about how it is being um, being privileged but uh, still struggling you know like yeah. that that um what do you call it is it a paradox where you equally you you privilege that you in stanford but that yeah. cause a lot yeah. of people they want to equate that to meaning that now your life has just turned into bliss like now you're in heaven like nothing can go wrong not realizing that you yeah. as well as still human still in a society that you actually face all these things yeah yeah that is true and it actually made it really hard for me to really help um i got like really depressed at the end of my first year and start of my second year and i couldn't reach out because every time i wanted to reach out I think you have no right to complain you know these people yeah. make it worse and yeah so it just made me feel guilty for which i shouldn't mm-hmm. feel guilty for but mm-hmm. i think eventually i just understand that just because people have it worse doesn't mean i don't have it bad you know and yeah it's not, yeah. yeah and what again I, i always ask as well what really at the end of the day is worse because for you maybe emotional things strike you harder than they would someone else but for you physical mm-hmm. things are not too bad but for someone else a eh, apple they draw the line so what really is worse you know exactly exactly and it makes me think <laughs> Okay, I'm not too religious, but it makes me think of um you know when people say God can't give you what you can't handle. Mm. Like I feel like everyone's burden is like directly how much they can handle. And so yeah. the pain I'd feel from something is different from the pain someone else would. I don't know how to explain it. You get it. Yeah. Like the same if the same thing happened to two people, the the pain might be different. Or like the yes. weight or the heaviness of it might be different. Yes. Yeah. I completely get you with that. And so um you talk about the end of uh first year being really bad for you. Please just suppose mm-hmm. me with that with the assessment you made about Stanford didn't really care about its students. So all of all you people who go to all these schools always have good things to say, but I think one thing I like about you folk at Stanford is that how honest you are about um stand for not caring a lot about your mental health 
So for you, from your observations, from the conversations you've had, why do you think that is so? And um, yeah. probably why, what, what would they do differently? Mm-hmm. Okay. I think, I mean, Stanford and I guess a lot of the schools, it's a business, right? Mm. It's, you know, it's a in as much as they, they just don't realize that they're with people and not just like assets. And so the thing with Stanford is our main, we have like a main like health place called CAPS, but that place, if you call today, you'll be given an appointment four months from now. Really? And that, that makes no sense to me. Mm. Like, that makes no sense to me because what if I was in crisis? No. Like, and whenever something happens, anything like anything terrible happens, Sanford has this like templates of emails <laughs> that they send. They're like, we support here are resources. And then they just list like the CAPS one and something else. And it's every single time, but they never go out of their way and to ask themselves why why is this happening? Why do students feel they need to do this and this, you know? Yeah. I feel like, yeah, I just feel like they put no effort. And why do you think that is, why, is, why are they so removed yet? There's been several cases of people offing themselves, you know, guys going through this. <laughs> offing. So, I, I, I hear that's the better term to use than... Oh, oh. I didn't know that. Okay, um, maybe that is the right word. People committing, yeah. Yeah, I know, I know. Uh-huh. I, I genuinely think the only reason Stanford responds or like Stanford sends all these emails when things happen is to kind of remove the blame. They're like, so that if something happens next time, we'll be like, oh, we supported them. We gave them, we sent them an email, we sent them resources. We did our part. It's not because yeah. they care. They're just they're trying to remove the blame from themselves. And I actually don't think they. Well, they probably their students, like whether they're alive or not. But also the other, they try to act like they're supporting us is just for their name. Mm. Things make headlines, and yeah. Yeah, but I don't know why they. I I don't understand. I feel like there's just levels to it that I just I don't. Understand. Yeah. And is it something that's like a blanket statement for all students, or are some students probably treated preferentially? Mm-hmm. I would say it's a blanket. I don't think. Yeah, I don't think there's any student that would be like that would have it easier if they were trying to get like help with their mental health. Um, mm. but that a lot of students who have mental health issues happen to be fly students, first generation low income students. Mm. Um, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. okay. And why do you um, think that? <laughs> why is it that it's um, fly students who probably experience this more? I'm not like a lot of I actually I'm not sure I actually I'm not sure but I feel like majority of the students who experience mental health issues are fly students 
So if you were to give one word to someone joining Stanford, what advice mm-hmm. would you tell them? One advice. I would say um <laughs> let's see. I would say Stanford is what you make of it. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Stanford has been I've had like my best moments at Stanford, but I've also had moments at Stanford certainly mm. um, the thing with Stanford is the highs are very high and the lows are very low two extremes yeah mm-hmm. yeah and so for you again now with you'd make it what you want to you you'd you'd make it what you want it to be um uh-huh. how has the, the journey of uh describing yourself been while at Stanford? Has it been exciting? Hard? You know? Cause I know like right now with Gen Z, we are all about healing our inner child and doing, mm. you know, all that good stuff for ourselves. So for you, how has that mm-hmm. been? Yeah. I think in the moment, in the moment, it's kind of confusing and very frustrating. But mm-hmm. in hindsight, like when I look back and I compare who I am right now and who I was when I joined Stanford, it's very satisfying. It's, you get the sense of relief, like I'm in the right path. Um, I think once I realized, the other thing with Kenyans coming to Stanford is a lot of us like to think there's one straight path to follow at Stanford because that's what people And it's like, you join freshman year, um, Google internship, uh, CS second year, I don't know, Amazon this and this, this and this and like for me, I initially when I joined, I was like that right? I was like, yeah, that's how it's supposed to go but then once I realized that there's so many other areas of Stanford and there's so much you can be and there's so much you can do I think that's when I really started to discover like what I wanted to do like um, like I would have rather gone to India for the summer than than some co- well, it was still a corporate job, but you know what I mean. Um, yeah, like something like when I joined Stanford for like I don't think we've ever seen, we know any Africans who joined Greek life, and I was like, oh, oh, okay, so that's not. But then yeah. I was like, why not? And mm-hmm. so I feel like this kind of like. Finding, realizing that you don't function as an as a group. You're, yeah, you function as a group. You're your own person, and your path is very different from other people's path. So I think that I think will help you discover yourself. That helps me discover myself a lot. And this also, um, I don't know. If, yeah, yeah. This is also like relevant to like taking gap years, leave of absence, stuff like that. Because it's very easy to feel like either you're falling behind or you need to graduate by this date or you need to have gotten this in time. But like everyone is in their own path, you know? Just because mm-hmm. I did this doesn't mean the next freshman has to do that. 
Yeah. That's not the mark of success. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's the best thing I learned while discovering that I was. Yeah, that I'm on my own path. And yeah, I think it's been beautiful. It, in the moment, it was frustrating because you have all these thoughts in your head about, um, am I doing the right thing? What do my parents think about this? My peers are doing this. Do I actually enjoy this? Um, do I actually want to be a computer scientist? It's frustrating, and I feel like it's something that's continuous, even in life. I think even for old people, like, um, I don't know, I think even 60 years old, they're still trying to discover more and more about themselves, and it can be frustrating, yeah. Interesting, because I was just about to ask, at least you answered that, I was just about to ask you just on now trying to set your own path, because sometimes you feel like, right, that there's already a certain path set mm-hmm. and probably it's the easier path but then you decide to take the path less traveled you know mm-hmm. and everyone else around you is asking the people going before you're telling you no don't do this it's harder just follow mm-hmm. this path because it's easier like that's why i want to ask you like mm-hmm. how is it again blocking the noises from all these players and then again realizing that even though you don't you follow this path you've chosen and things don't go too well that you shouldn't mm-hmm. be too harsh on yourself and say you know, they, they were right. They told me, you should just say, yes, I've lived, I've learned, you know. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, I wouldn't say I am the biggest example of someone who chose their own path because, I mean, I'm still CS. I'm still doing corporate internships and stuff. But I feel like... <laughs> You're so funny. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like... Um, it's easy it's easy to feel like you know it's not even the moment of deciding whether you want it or not it's thinking about the outcome right it's mm-hmm. thinking about will this work path that has been followed by so many i i i think i know like only two kenyan students who are not studying computer science mm. the thing about following the path that has it's you know like a yeah. step it's this step and everyone's like this is how you this is how you prepare for internships this is how you do this and so, yeah, it might, not the easiest, but it's like, part, right? But I, I don't know. I feel like for me, the way you're saying like blocking out the noises, it wasn't mostly for my peers. It got to a point where I just did not really care. It was mostly from like people back home. Because my parents are still like, you know, eight years primary, four years, four years degree, computer science. Like they don't, like if you mention something like, I want to study abroad, they're like, you're already abroad. If you're like, I don't yeah, know, they what just you feel mean? like there's this, yeah, uh, they feel like that there's this rigid straight way that everything should be done. And so I, that was my biggest fear because my dad would constantly call me and be like, what classes are you taking? And I'd mention some random class that's not CS related. And he'd be like, how does that contribute to your degree? What's that? What's that? And I'd mm. be like, so that was the hardest. Just trying to make my parents understand that it's not like, it's not a straight line, you know? Yeah. Like at the end we get there. And yeah, so I think for me, I just needed, the best thing I had to learn was to just literally ignore my parents mm. and just be like yeah 
and it is it, they don't understand a lot and i i don't believe anyone at i don't think anyone at home understands like when you tell it's like the thing with mental health right if you try to explain to an african parent well yeah most of them it's like um you have food you have a roof over your head what do you mean you're depressed it's mm. like and it's not their fault because that's how they grew up you know for them having mm-hmm. basic needs was like the main goal yeah yeah i think for me the biggest people i had to like ignore and like actually just be i was very like rigid with them all since you guys and and with that as well um mm-hmm. please uh, talk to me about how you differentiate when your parents are actually giving you sound advice and sometimes mm-hmm. you just understand that okay oh, these are parts they don't know and so um let me just do my own thing here because again growing up in an african setting you just um, i'm actually doing a class on children and the law and we're just mm-hmm. talking about uh, some of the philosophical developments and uh, how africans view children and childhood and uh, mm-hmm. we're talking about how sometimes children were meant to be seen and not mm-hmm. heard where mm-hmm. a child didn't know anything a child mm-hmm. literally should listen to their parents come hook or crook and some and so mm-hmm. i realized a lot of uh, with our parents that's sometimes the case where they, they for them they feel like we know we are older sometimes obviously they have that wisdom but sometimes you know this then they what they're saying they make the best sense for you so how have you learned to differentiate that but still again being respectful or sometimes unasema too or is it that mm-hmm. sometimes unasema too you could take it, i know this this one you take it disrespectfully but at the end of the day this is for my best interest mm. yeah yeah i feel like that was a fight for me that was something i had to fight for like having a voice mm-hmm. or like them taking me seriously it's something i had to fight for i of course my parents know a lot more than me it doesn't matter the context like whether I'm in the US whether they're in Kenya they definitely know more but the situations where i'm like here they don't have the context in the way that they should or they have to be here to understand mm. and and most times i would obviously be like um no you're wrong i'll just be like i'll think about that dad i'll consider that i'll consider that and see if it fits my situation and i feel like right now we've gotten to this level of respect where yeah whatever i say actually you know matters because i know like in high school i'd say something and my mom would be like you can't like you're too young to know what you're saying you think you're now old enough to talk back to us but i think at, right now my parents and i are like at a very good level where we respect each other and why they want to do this or to do this instead they'll be like oh why how is that different and i'll give them reasons i'll be like oh cuz this is this is how this works and this is how this works and they'll be like oh you know so i think it's something i had to fight for but we've gotten to that level of respect and so i there, is it something that sometimes they still struggle with but then they they understand eventually ama have they now reached a point where they've fully resulted into trusting your decisions <laughs> um i think they really struggle with it sometimes i mm. mm-hmm. there's times where 
something or like I say no to something and you can tell my mom is like this girl mm. like she just thinks I'm being stubborn and yeah but she's learned not to fight back that's that's the thing like you can tell uh, she's not agreeing and you can tell she wants to yell at me but she won't do it uh-huh yeah and uh i don't know i think it's just also with age and it just i don't know i think it's the age i don't know but yeah you can t- sometimes they struggle with it i know they do i know they do i know i've had my aunt has said my mom said i'm kind of stubborn sometimes <laughs> and uh, i understand why she'd say that but that as well for you how do you know that is she holding back or she you know like wants you to be an adult and just probably suffer the consequences of your actions or is it one mm-hmm. of those things that if i mess up with Alison she might never come back because i realized parents with long distance children who are long distance because you know i have a brother there as well the more mm-hmm. gentle the more you know calm like they don't want to push some boundaries like with me here my parents can push every boundary because they know I'm just here <laughs> but with you guys parents are more hey hapa tusijaribu sana um that's so funny that you mentioned that you know in high mm. school my school is like maybe 20 minutes away from my home i don't know alliance to lang yeah. party i'm not sure 20 but yeah okay. i would lit- i would literally stay in school for half times with people from no like Turkana and places like that just because you know how in high school like you fought or maybe you didn't but I fought with my mom a lot and I'd yeah. tell her I'd be like I'm not coming home and she'd be like mm. okay because what can she do mm. and it's not like I was staying to study I wasn't even studying I was just staying because I, I I was like I just don't want to be at home and yeah. when I said when we had online classes right before like yeah. the first quarter and i moving to kwetu and she was like why we have internet and kwetu is like almost 10 minutes away from my home genuinely yeah um, she was like we have internet i was like now nah, i just want to leave and so my mom knows that i i'm not really tethered to my home I'm excited to be back home she's been asking me to go back home for the longest time um mm. like for summer and stuff like that but i think for... i've never um i went to boarding school at 8 years old so mm. i'm so used to like not having to you know like just doing my own thing right yeah and i never really learned how to live at home like yeah i genuinely can't imagine living at home <laughs> that's funny that you say that because with that as well mm-hmm. is it sometimes that your mother understand that probably it's probably me not making the environment conducive for Alison to come home because you know how parents will do everything but take responsibility for their actions mm. yeah so um like oh, mm-hmm. sorry No go ahead go ahead. I think I don't think she I mean that I don't go home a lot but I also don't think I think she just thinks that I like to be by myself. 
So for you, um, that solitude, like you're the proper embodiment of long distance friendship, uh, uh, relationship with your parents, uh, where it's at. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Mm. Mm-hmm. And so even as you wind up, mm-hmm. I'd asked you earlier, like, what would you tell little Alison? Or should I use the rapper name that I used? Anyway. No. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would be a sick rapper name, to be honest. Uh, little Ali. <laughs> <laughs> uh, huh? I just tell her that you don't have to work for love. You deserve love. You don't have to do anything to be loved. And I would still tell current Alison that. Um, and I'm talking like, like in friendships, um, with family and relationships, you don't have to work for it. I don't mean don't work on yourself. I mean, you don't have to do something to prove that you deserve to be loved. So yeah. have you met people who actually just genuinely love Alison for Alison without what she's bringing to the table without her being in Stanford, without all these other things that people love you and are very transactional about? I have. I have. Mostly um, mostly with my female friends. I feel like I get the sense of that like unconditional love that um, that you don't have to do anything and no matter how much you fuck up or you know, you don't have to prove yourself to them. You don't have to prove that you're a good person. You don't have to prove that you're smart or anything. Um, yeah, that's all I'll say about that. Mm. And mm. so it has, has um, current Alison learned that? Is she practicing that? She is, I would say, I feel like I feel like when it comes to certain people or rather uh-huh. like when I'm new to relationships, like whether it's platonic or not, I feel this urge to like prove myself to them, right? Uh-huh. I feel this urge to like show that, yeah, I'm, you know, I can do this and this, which is something I'm trying to like remove myself from because once you start the relationship by proving yourself, then they'll expect you to continuously prove yourself throughout the relationship and that's very strenuous for you. Yeah. Ah, nice. So, I hope that actually, you like, because I think a lot of these things is just a matter of learning and unlearning because a lot of us mm-hmm. probably always feel like we have to do something to earn love because even as you said earlier in this podcast how you'll always be validated based on probably your academics and so you want to perform well so you can always receive that validation and think. Mm-hmm. As humans, somehow, even as children, especially, you derive a certain uh, joy from this validation. And so, if it doesn't come, it leaves us um, very sad and angry. And so, when you learn that at a very young stage and learning it earlier, later in life, is very hard. Mm-hmm. But more power to us. One day, inshallah, one day, we learn that would mm. genuinely love you for just being you. But again, realizing that there are people who will only love you for being in Stanford, for being in CS, mm-hmm. for knowing that Alison probably has a great future ahead of her, so it's no stress. Yeah, so I let the listeners tweet at us the Bushan pod follow us the good about in Bushan and tell us all the things they've loved about this episode, what are their thoughts on some of the things we talked about. Have a lovely week mm-hmm. ahead folks and cheers. Mm-hmm.